0: Yeah, so as we just read today, we are in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to turn there now in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up and I'm sure we can get one to you. Anyone? No? One at the front here? Cool. Yeah, so the reason we want you to have your Bibles open each Sunday is because we believe it is inerrant and infallible word of God. We believe there is the only source of truth in the world, and I want you to see that what I say comes from the Word of God and not from my own mind, not from my own thoughts, but is from God. Um, Last week we were introduced to this character in the Bible that will play quite a substantial role, um, Abraham, or as we'll later call him, Abraham. We saw that he was given this blessing and promise from God. We also saw that because God told him to pack up and leave his father and go to Canaan, he did so. He took with him his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, along with all of their servants, animals and wealth. We saw that when he was in Canaan, he built two altars to the Lord in recognition of what God had said to him. At the end of the passage from last week, we see that Abram and all those with him continued journeying toward the Negev. That's an area in the south of Israel. In the sermon today, we are going to continue with Abram. We're going to see that he kept travelling and ended up in Egypt. We will see that Abram was still just a man, despite these promises that God had given him. But before we get into the passage, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we have your word. I thank you that we can read it. I thank you that we can understand it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me as I preach now, Lord, that what I say would be from you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to put this into effect in our lives, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn our attention to the text and verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to Sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram, having traveled from Haran, to Canaan, and then around Canaan for a bit, had kept going, kept going south into the Negev. This area in the south land is a wilderness. This was in verse 9. It was at this point that we hear about the famine, it's the first famine that is mentioned in the Bible, and it shows just how far the world had fallen. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God created all of the fruits and plants for Adam and Eve to eat. That was the perfect way that God had intended. But then they sinned and were cast out of the garden and had to work the land for their food. The world changed as it became more and more corrupt. We see the reality of this after the flood. Animals now feared man and could be taken for food and the world no longer gave bountiful provision from its ground. I said that this is the first famine that the Bible mentions from here on, it becomes common. There is a famine in the time of Isaac in Genesis 36, uh, 26, and in the time of Jacob in Genesis 43, which ended with them back in Egypt. Throughout the Old Testament, from Judges to Nehemiah, there are several famines, some of which come as direct judgment from God. So we have this famine happening in the land of Canaan, and it is clearly worrying Abram. He has been told that he will have children and that those children will become a great nation and will come and bless the world. But it appears that Abram is at best not thinking about this and at worst actively ignoring the word of God. He's not trusting that God will provide for him and his family. Because he is looking not at the promise of God Not thinking about the world with God in mind, but thinking with his own ideas. He takes his people down to Egypt. Now, this before Abram had any children. So the people with him would have been Sarah, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and all of their servants and animals that came from Ur to Haran and Haran to Canaan. They head down to Egypt. Now, Egypt in the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, is seen as a place of bondage, a place of oppression, a place that, is, that worships false gods, a place that functions on the whims of man and not on the word of God. This is solidified and emphasised by the centuries of bondage that Abram's descendants would have there. In verse 10, we see the phrase to sojourn there, a phrase that is often seen in Scripture, the word sojourn and its various forms mean to live in a place for a time, but not permanently. When Abram was heading down to the country to try and escape the effects of the famine, he does not intend to stay there forever. He was not completely forsaking the promises of God. What Owen said last week, I think, is very pertinent here. God says, but I think. God had given Abram these promises. Abram was thinking how he could save himself. Abram knew what God had said. He had known for a while what God wanted, but he had lost sight of that goal. Just as in Haran, where they stopped and stayed longer than they ever should, they weren't looking at God. Verse 11 When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. As they head down to um, Egypt, we can see Abram's mind just whirring. We've already seen that he's not trusting God to provide for his family in this instance. And now we know that Egypt was a fertile and fruitful land, but there is an issue. These days, this country was a fratriarchal society, which means that if these people were in a foreign territory, the natives of that territory would take the husband and kill him and take the wife for themselves. This would have been Abram's worry. So, as they're heading down to Egypt, Abram, thinking to himself, he decides to ask Sarai this question. He says to his wife, Say you are my sister, so they don't kill me, so they don't take you. If we see in Genesis chapter 20, um, verses 10 to 13, it says, And Abimelech said to Abram, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abram said, I did because I thought. There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say, to, say of me, he is my brother." So we see that when he asks her to say that she is his sister, he's not asking her to completely lie, but he is asking her to deceive. Sarah and Abraham had the same father, but they did have different mothers. And in our modern minds, this is just something that shouldn't happen. But when we read scripture, and especially in the beginning, we must remember that humanity was created perfect. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were perfectly created human beings. There wouldn't have been any genetic issues that we have today. There would have been no defects. However, God brings a natural end to intermarriage, to this incest almost, and a divine one in the law. In Leviticus 18 verse 6, it says this, none of you shall approach any one of your close relatives to uncover their nakedness. I am the law. And then in verse nine it says, "You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home." So we see that whatever the circumstance, from the time of the Exodus, it is wrong to do this. The world has continued to degrade up to that point. It is worth noting that although she was at least sixty-five, Sarah was very beautiful. And I think this shows that although the length of time that people were living was shortening, it wasn't to the length that we have today yet. I mean, just think about it. Abram was at least 75 and not even halfway through his life. Same for Sarah. We see later in Genesis 23 that she lived to be 127 years old. So at this point in their lives, they are middle-aged. This might explain why she is called beautiful so often. So Abram says to his wife, they will kill him and let her live, so she should lie, so that he might live. Abram, I'm not sure if you noticed, has switched from thinking about his family to thinking about himself. And worse than that, he's willing to use his wife as a way to ensure his own safety. And maybe worst of all, he has stopped thinking about what God has said. He has stopped relying on God for his provision and protection but he's relying on his own deceit, on his own ability to try and save his own life. Abraham was the man God had chosen to be the foundation of the nation through whom the saviour of the world would come. Yet here in our interactions with him, Abraham is a lying, proud man who doubts the ability of God and is struggling to leave it up to him. So that's our journey to Egypt. Let us now consider the time In Egypt, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. When they enter Egypt, it is as Abram expected. The Egyptians see Sarai and indeed, she is very beautiful. They are quite taken with her. Remember, this wasn't just Sarah and Abraham to be noticed. This was all of their family. This was their nephew Lot, their servants, their animals. It's quite a caravan if you think about it. They were no small group and would have been easily noticed by anyone just walking into the land. Now, among these people that noticed them, you had the princes. Although it's translated here as princes, the Hebrew is also translated as official or ruler or captain or chief. So although it's translated as princes here, it's more likely that they were members of Pharaoh's court, his officials, his advisors. At the end of Genesis, when Joseph is made second in command of the country by Pharaoh, he would have been this prince or ruler, similar sort of role. And look at their reaction, they praise her. She is so beautiful that they praise her. This word praise in the Hebrew is the word halal, This is a a word that is used throughout the Bible to mean praise, and we even have it today in many of our worship songs. Whenever you sing hallelujah, you're praising God, hallel, praise, Yahweh, God's personal name. Interestingly, it is the first time that it appears here in Scripture. You see how this word that is used to describe our praise to God, our lifting up of the Lord. That is used to describe the way that these people saw Sarai, the way that they referred to her. They lifted her up and they took all of this praise of her beauty back to Pharaoh, who then decides to bring her into his house. If we look at Abram's perspective, he probably thought that things were going quite well. He'd gotten into the country without getting killed, without getting any of his people killed. In the matter of Sarah, well, she had been taken into Pharaoh's house, and from all I've been able to gather, this would mean that she'd been made part of the royal harem. She was part of Pharaoh's household, and as far as Pharaoh's concerned, she belonged to him. Verse sixteen. And her and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Because Pharaoh had taken Sarai, the woman that he thought was Abram's sister, he decides to deal well with Abram. And what he essentially does is pay Abram off. He has taken something that belonged to Abram, belonged to his family, and so Pharaoh gives back to the family. He gives to her relation, her supposed brother, an increase of wealth. He gives him flocks of sheep, yokes of oxen. He provides a way for Abram to earn money through these animals. He gives male and female donkeys. So not only has Pharaoh given Abram these animals, and that sees an immediate increase of wealth, but by giving him both male and female donkeys and sheep and oxen, he provides a way for them to provide an exponential increase of wealth over time as well. A quick word on the servants that were given to Abram. To be clear, this is not like the 19th century servants that we have in our minds. Abram wasn't given a butler and a housekeeper. No, these people would have been indentured servitudes. They would have been slaves. And I want to make clear that our idea of slavery is not the same as slavery in the Bible. What we have in our mind when we think of slavery is the racist ideas of the 1700s and 1800s. We think of slaves being chained and shipped from continent to continent, being worked until they drop, being worked until they died, without mercy, without compassion. But that is not what is happening in the Bible here. The slavery in the Bible—it was not about race, it was not about taking people from one place to another, but it was about wealth. The Lexicon Bible Dictionary says this: slavery could take the form of debt slavery in which people sold themselves or their children to clear their debts. Punishment for crime, the birth of children of slaves, and the enslavement of victims of piracy or war. Slaves in state-owned mines worked in inhumane conditions and had short life expectancy. But many household slaves, on the other hand, fared better. Slavery in the Bible is just as much punishment for crimes as anything. And just because slavery exists does not mean that it was right in the levitical law there is a whole section on slavery on the way that a slave is to be treated and this should not be seen as god condoning slavery by any means but merely god making provision for the wickedness of man god knew that man is wicked he knew that he had sinned and that he was full of sin and so it creates a way to control it so that those that are enslaved of a better life and gives rights and freedoms to those that are enslaved. Okay, let's look at this final section where the Lord interjects in verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away and all that he had. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh with great plagues because of Sarah. Let's think for a moment from Abraham's perspective again. He, having gone down to Egypt, has had his life spared. He has had his wife to take him to live in the royal palace. The royal palace of Pharaoh. He's been given riches and wealth, animals, servants. It looks like it's going well. However, Abram and his wife are still separated. And God has given him, that being Abram, God has given Abram a promise that he'll make him a great nation. And this would have been with Sarah, his wife. Now, it's already quite difficult to start a family when you're their age. That would require a miracle that wouldn't happen for another 24 years, but it is exponentially more difficult to start a family when you're not even together. So, how does God work in this seemingly impossible situation? He sends great plagues on Pharaoh, his household, his court. The Hebrew word for afflicted here literally means to touch violently. The Lord touched violently the house of Pharaoh. This seems to mirror the beginning of the book of Exodus, where Moses and Aaron go to a different Pharaoh to demand the release of the Israelite people. We see here with Sarai and Abram that Sarah was the reason for the plagues. Because Pharaoh had taken her away from Abram, because Pharaoh had separated them. These plagues had come on Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh had taken her away from the man that she was married to. He had taken away from her family, the people that she belonged with, and brought her into his own harem. He had not done what was right in the eyes of God Almighty. In Psalm 105, it says this, When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. That's Psalm 105, verses uh, 12 to 15, if you want to write that down. What David is singing about here in the psalm is what's happening here in Abram's life. And what happens again in chapter 20 is that while while Abram and Sarai are wandering around these places, while they're going from place to place, kingdom to kingdom, people to people, God has got his hand on them. Even though Abram has been faithless up to now, even though Abram has forsaken the promise of God for a short time, God does not allow anyone to oppress them. God does not allow anyone to separate. God does not allow anyone to null and void the promise that God had given them. Because God is truth. When God speaks, he speaks truth and only truth. All truth in the world is from God and God alone. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, we don't know how Pharaoh found out that he was being afflicted. It might have been a servant. It might have been, yeah. But he does realize that it's because of Sarai that he's being afflicted. It's because he has taken Sarai away from Abram that he's being afflicted. And so he calls to Abram. He says, come here, come to the court. And his reaction is interesting. He confronts him, and this act of deception from Abram is taken almost as a sign of conflict. It is almost an act of aggression against the Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, What is this that you have done to me? What have you done? Those words in my mind just hang for a second in the air, like a man mortally wounded. What have you done? But he goes on saying, Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Pharaoh knew that he had done wrong. He knew that this deception from Abram, through it, he had sinned. He had sinned by taking Abram's wife. Pharaoh recognises here what Christ explicitly states in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Christ says, Um, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Pharaoh knew that he had separated this husband and wife at this point. I knew that that had been sin. He recognised that the bond of marriage was not just one to be temporary, but one that is to be seen as holy and ordained by God. That is why the words from Abram to Abram are so pointed. Why he's so offended by what Abram has done. And consider Pharaoh's final response. It boils down to essentially this. Here is your wife, now get out with all of your wealth all of your animals, all of your servants, and get out of my country. That is what Pharaoh says to Abram. He, instead of killing them, instead of stripping them of their wealth, instead of just taking everything back and going, you've deceived me, and so I'm taking my wealth, I'm taking my servants, instead of further sinning, he says, here, take your stuff, take all that I have given you so far and get away from me. It's similar again to Moses and Aaron in Exodus where after the death of the firstborn, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, get out, take the people, be gone. Now if we were to look at this episode in isolation, one might think that things have gone well for Abram in Egypt. But although he and his wife were separated for a time, ultimately nothing bad happened to them. So, so all is well that ends well, right? Sadly not. We all see that due to this wealth that he acquired in Egypt, Abram and Lot are forced to separate. This leads Lot to a place that is completely wicked. It leads Lot to Sodom and Gomorrah. We also see le- later in another episode of faithlessness from Abram that he will sleep with Hagar for a son and have Ishmael. Hagar was an Egyptian. She was given to Sarai while they were in Egypt. These are both direct consequences of this episode of faithlessness from Abram. Now we've understood this passage. Let's just consider some application. How can we apply this to our lives? When Abram went down to Egypt, he wasn't following the word of God. He knew what God had said, but couldn't see how God could provide. He just couldn't see it. It was dark to him. How could God possibly provide for him in the midst of a famine? But God has said that he would. But instead of waiting to see God, he decided to provide for himself. He didn't listen to God's word, but he made his own decisions. We also have God's word. We have the Bible. This is the way that God has chosen to communicate. We need to recognize the power of the word of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation. No one ever became a believer without hearing from the word of God. We as believers should be bold and have confidence in that. Have confidence that God will use His Word to reveal Himself not only to us, but also to the unbelievers, to the people outside who we do not talk to. But we should, to those who are yet to believe. We should not be ashamed of the Word of God. We should not be trying to change it to make it more palatable for the culture. But we need to be faithful to God and to his word, because without him, there is nothing. At college, in our Christian Life class, we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, which says this. But when one, um, 15 to 18, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Verse 15 there is talking to the Jews, but 16 to 18 is talking of us. The church, the effect on us by being in the word of God, by reading and listening to him. When we are reading and listening to him, when we are in the word, we are changed. We are sanctified. We are made righteous and holy. We are reflecting the glory of God in the same way that Moses reflected the glory of God after being on Mount Sinai. But we can only reflect this when we are beholding the glory of God. When we are reading his word. When we are seeing that what he says is truth. When it's happening, then we are shining like Moses. That veil is removed. And how can we follow God's word if we are not in it? I would encourage us all, and this is the application, to be in the word daily. Then we might reflect the glory of God. We might shine because we are in it. But people will be able to look at us and go, that is a man who reads the Word. That is a woman who knows God because we are reflecting the glory of God. We have a brilliant Bible reading plan here at LBC. I'm like, if you haven't started reading the Bible daily, I would encourage you to do so. We've still got some booklets at the back. Pick one up and start today. Get in the Word. Feast on it. Be fed by it. My second application is this. Let us be faithful people. Abram is known as the father of faith. And he is the archetype for the man of faith, being referenced as such in Romans 4, Galatians 3, Hebrews 11, and James 2. So although we see him going through a period where he wasn't looking to the Lord, a period where he wasn't following the word of God, Abram did follow the Lord and had faith in him. And that was how the Lord justified him. He was saved by grace through faith the same way as you and I. So when we think about a testimony before Christ, how do we want to be seen? Abram was seen as the man of faith. Do we exemplify God? Do we want to exemplify God? Being faithful to him and to his word, no matter the consequences. Being willing to go through ostracization and trials for the sake of our saviour. And I put it to you that this is how we do want to be seen. We should want to be seen as faithful to the word of God, even if it means that we are put out. Even if it means that society hates us. In Philippians chapter 1 that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have." Paul was conflicted constantly. Paul was stoned in Acts but survived. But Paul knew that the gospel of Christ was worth more than his life he knew that what Jesus wanted of him was more than he could possibly give, and he was willing to go that far. This week, I ask you to spend a time contemplating what you think it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then act on it. I am sure that there are sins that need to be forgiven, sins that need to be repented of. Get on that. Don't let things hang around. What issues need to be addressed in your life? Address them. Don't let them be unaddressed for another week. Get rid of the junk in your life and press forward to the glory of God that we might receive our prize with him in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for Abram. I thank you for his life. I thank you for his example. I thank you that we can study him and study how you used him. Lord, I pray that as we think about these things, that you would speak to us, that we'd be able to act on them, Lord, that we'd be able to address the things in our life that need to be addressed, that we'd be able to let go of the things that need to be let go of, and that we'd be able to push forward to your glory, Lord. That even if we suffer, even if we go through trials, even when we go through trials, Lord, we would be able to look at you and go, God is good, God is gracious, God is kind, and God has me. Father, I pray that we would be able to trust you, trust your word, Lord, who would reflect your glory in the world, Lord, that we would shine as lights before you and before the world, Lord. We wouldn't just try to fit in, Lord, but that we would actively seek to stand out. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.